You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge. Now, Outdoor Edge is a knife company. We all know that. They offer a complete line of fixed blade knives, replaceable blade knives, and game processing kits, right? So any blade you need to break down an animal, these guys have it. Now, the cool thing about their replaceable blades is let's say you are in the middle of breaking down an animal and the blade goes dull. The only thing you have to do is push a button the blade pops out, you put a new blade in, it locks in tight, and you're back to breaking down that animal. You get it cooled down, you get it back to the truck faster, and you get more meat in the long run. So if you want to find out more information about all the blades, fixed, replaceable, and game processing kits that Outdoor Edge makes, visit their website, OutdoorEdge.com, and if you want to save 30% on your purchase, enter the discount code NATION30, that's N-A-T-I-O-N-30, and that's OutdoorEdge.com. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Welcome. Uh, I hope that everyone out there is is having a good day, no matter where they're listening from. Uh, This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, And this is episode 10. Uh, we have reached double digits. Um, today on the podcast, I am joined by Chris Henry of Bend, Oregon. Uh, Chris, like everyone else that uh, I've had a chance to speak with so far, uh, is a really great story. Um, Chris grew up uh, in a family that, that spent a lot of time outdoors hunting. Um, and while Chris didn't uh, particularly join in, uh, he wasn't you know, in the field uh, with a gun. Uh, as, as a kid and, and growing up, um, he got into the actual act of hunting uh, later on in life. Um, and it's kind of the, the outdoors and, and hunting is kind of what had uh, saved Chris um, after a, a pretty bad motorcycle accident um, that he had. So it, it's really cool to hear uh, Chris's passion that he has for the outdoors. I mean, since getting into hunting. I mean, Chris has, he has went all in and, um, you know, I think you guys are really going to be able to, uh, to hear the passion, uh, that Chris has for, uh, you know, outdoors conservation, uh, and making sure that, that things are left, um, better than what we find them. 
Um, so also, uh, as I mentioned, we are episode number 10. Uh, so I really hope that uh, you guys have enjoyed listening uh, to the stories of, of these guests uh, as much as I've enjoyed uh, bringing them to you. Um, I think that um, as time goes on, the, the conversations, the stories, uh, the companies are, are just going to get better and better each time uh, that we, we have a chance to speak to someone. So um, I guess without any further ado, here's Chris. All right. On the phone with me today, I have Chris Henry from Oregon. Chris, how's it going today, man? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, so it's funny, when I first started the podcast, so Jared uh, Frazier over there at 2%, he had kind of reached out to committee members and, and stuff like that about who uh, may have some interest in, in coming on the podcast, right? And I don't know if maybe you just hadn't got around to answering or what the case was, but I know uh, one of my first guests, Greg Vandenberg, kind of threw you under the bus a little bit and was like, oh, no, we need to get Chris on this podcast, like, right away, so. Yeah, yeah, no, I just, life gets busy, and uh, I had intentions of, yeah, trying to let Jared know that I was wanting to get on, and, yeah, it just had kind of got away from me, and then I seen, uh, when Greg reposted, you know, his episode or whatever, and I listened to it and commented, and I was like, yeah, man, I need to need to get on there, so... Yeah, well, no, I'm glad that uh, that that Greg uh, kind of gave the nudge because uh, I think you got a really great story, and I'm excited for people to hear it. Well, thank you. Yeah, for sure. So, to kind of give us a baseline here, I mean, the average conservationist podcast. I mean, it's it's normal people doing you know extraordinary work with conservation. So, to kind of give us a baseline here, so what is it that you do for a living, Chris? So I'm a journeyman plumber. Um, I work for a business here in town, locally in Central Oregon. Uh, we're a manufacturing facility, but I'm their in-house plumber slash maintenance tech, I guess. So I do everything from taking care of air compressors, boilers, uh, process piping, reactors, uh, HVAC, refrigeration, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. So how long have you been <clears throat> been doing that? I mean, I know you're a journeyman, but I don't know. Like how many hours uh, it takes to, to become a journeyman? So in Oregon, I think it's uh, 7,700 hours on your apprenticeship of on-the-job hours, or maybe it's 8,000, and then 500 hours of, uh, of schoolwork. And then uh, so I started, I think it was like December 5th, 2002, uh, or 2003. It was right after my son was born, actually. So I've been doing it, you know, 16 years. So. Okay. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So are you born and raised right there in Oregon? Yep. Yep. Born and raised in Central Oregon. I was born in Redmond, uh, lived in Redmond, Tumalo, back to Redmond, and now I live in Bend. Okay. So, yeah, it's a good place to be. Yeah. So I've, I've never been to Oregon. I've been to, uh, <clears throat> like, California, Washington, um, but I have not, uh, I have not made it to Oregon, but it's definitely on my list of States that I need to get to. Yeah. It's, it's great here, man. There's tons of stuff to do. So, yeah, I mean, just being, um, <clears throat> I mean, my wife and I took a trip out to Seattle. Oh gosh. Five years ago, maybe something like that. Four years ago. Uh, and we just, you know, kind of did touristy stuff. Right. But, you know, yeah. still just the, you know, just everything like from an outdoor standpoint that that region has to offer is, is really intriguing yeah. to me. Yeah. That's, what's great about here is like, you know, we have the mountains in close proximity. So there's like, you know, in the winter there's skiing, snowboarding, cross country skiing, snowshoeing, snow machines, 
you know, all that sort of stuff. And then come summertime, I mean, I mean, mountain biking, hiking, you know, backpacking, fishing, like it's just, it's an outdoor Mecca for people that, you know, want to be able to have those opportunities. So, yeah, see, I'm a big, uh, a big skier, right? I, I, I grew up doing that. So like every uh, pretty, yeah, pretty much every winter we, uh, my wife and I, and some friends, we always make a trip out to Colorado and ski for three or four days. And nice. I mean, there's just so many things that the Western States have to offer that lonely yeah. old Michigan here, um, right. <laughs> doesn't that, uh, sometimes it really makes me want to pack up the truck and, and just head West for a while. Yeah, man. I don't blame you. Especially like with public lands over here out West, you know, just in Oregon, I think we're pushing around 32 million acres of public land. Wow. So it's like I can literally drive like 15, 20 minutes west of my house and I can walk like as far as I can see and never cross private land. Really? You know, so yeah. So is that primarily what you do a lot of your recreating on is just public land there? Yeah, yeah. Pretty much most of the recreating I do is all on either U.S. Forest Service or BLM. Okay. So yeah. So, so tell me, Chris, how was it exactly that you were uh, introduced to the outdoors? So as a kid uh, growing up, my grandpa, um, he was kind of a historian, and he just loved the outdoors. He followed, like, the wagon trails from the Oregon Trail, and mm-hmm. there was a group, like, called the, the Meeks that got lost coming through the desert of Oregon. He kind of followed them and helped kind of, like, ignite that passion for the outdoors for me. We fished and stuff a little bit as a kid. Um, then as I got older, one of my dad's good friends uh, taught me how to fly cast. So I really got into that, started fly fishing. And then my grandma, my step-grandpa, my aunt, my uncle, they all, all hunted as I was a kid. So I'd just tag along, you know, like little snot-nosed kid. I'd just go walking <laughs> along with them. Never, never carried a rifle or anything, but I had fun being out there, you know. And yeah. we'd, we'd always do, you know, the mule deer hunts in October – and then, you know, first or second season elk every year. And uh, they weren't always the most successful, but I had fun. But I never packed a rifle, you know, as, when I was a kid. I uh, My mom was a vet tech, and so she was always bringing in animals and stuff. And so we'd always be taking care of, like, wounded animals from goats to hawks to owls to all sorts of stuff, you know. And um, so I never really picked up hunting myself as a kid. Um, it wasn't for me until later in life, you know, like, like a lot of guys you hear, you know, it's that adult onset hunter, essentially, right, right. you know, so. So was it hard for you? I mean, even just tagging along on some of those hunts when you were a kid, like, and, and being exposed to, to, um, like you, you said, your, your mother was a vet tech. So, you know, you're, you're kind of nursing and taking care of all of these, these other animals, whether they're domestic or, or not. I mean, did that kind of play a little factor with maybe not necessarily wanting to get into hunting early on? Yeah. So for me as a kid, it really did. So there was a bad experience I had with my step where we were on the west side of the valley or the mountains in the valley doing a blacktail hunt. And I remember this buck coming up over this fence and it was private property. It was his son-in-law's property. And uh, he took a shot thought he missed this buck well he ended up hitting this little tiny button buck that was behind it and just wounded it you know and I remember walking up with it or to it you know with him and him not wanting to waste a bullet and essentially slitting the throat of the deer you know and like that sound of like that gurgling of the blood and filling up in the lungs was something like 
to this day, I remember that. And it really turned me off as a kid, you know, and I was like, I don't ever want to experience that, you yeah. know, like, so that was hard for me. I still went with them afterwards, but I was just like, I just didn't know if like I could personally do it at the time, you know? So, yeah, that could be, uh, pretty traumatizing. I know, uh, that, yeah, as a young kid, yeah, to be exposed to kind of how rough nature can be. I mean, granted, it wasn't nature that, you know, put the bullet in the deer, but still, I mean, nature taking its course with, with dying and things like that. But I recall a similar story with myself. Um, my, uh, my father-in-law shot a deer and it, uh, <clears throat> ended up dying in a creek bed or like in a creek. Right. And, yeah. uh, it, I mean, it ran a long ways because the, the, the piece of property that we were hunting, the creek, I could kind of see down into it. I couldn't get a shot at it with a bow when I was hunting, but I could definitely hear and see down into certain parts. And hearing that deer die in yep. in the river, you know, in the same the same type of thing where, I mean, it wasn't like it didn't have a slit throat or anything, but still like the gurgling with the water and just, yeah, it's, yep. I mean, that was like five years ago and it still kind of doesn't sit right with me, the noise, you know, but. Yeah. Yep. So. I guess you, you, so you got into hunting, um, later on in life. At what point would you say you kind of made the switch from, from being a hunter to, to being, you know, concerned with conservation and, and, and becoming a conservationist? So my story's a little different. So I'm, I'm going to jump back just a little bit before I picked up hunting. So, uh, 13 years ago this June, I actually, I, I wrecked on a motorcycle, broke my back, both my legs, um, was essentially paralyzed for like the first four days in the hospital. Oh, wow. And uh, spent 27 days in the hospital, three months in a wheelchair, nine months in a back brace. I was pretty much told like I was never going to walk again. And before then, I had like picked up fly fishing, was really passionate about that. Uh, my son was like three or four years old, I guess three years old at the time. Um that was during my journeyman apprenticeship, all that. So it kind of like set some things back there. But so essentially once I got through all that, um, my boss kept me on. Um, we had picked up a couple little jobs here and there. Well, he laid everybody else off. We picked up this big job. Um, that summer he was like, or that spring, he was like, he just wanted to go do something to get out and get away. And so I decided like, it, and it was going to be good for my recovery to go out, go hike, like exercise muscles, that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. So we decided to go turkey hunt, right? That we knew that there was turkeys in this area. It wasn't too far. Um, we went and did that and weren't successful, had a really good time. But, uh, so sorry, I, I hate to interrupt. Had you, either one of you guys been, uh, turkey hunting prior to that or? Never. Okay. All right. So you guys just kind of so, on a whim so said, let's do it. Most videos, like watching <laughs> all those videos, man. And just like do it. Like that's the great thing about today's day and age, right? Like if you want to learn something and if you like really want to dig into it, there's just a plethora of information right. online and movies like yep. podcasts, YouTube videos, all that sort of stuff, you know? But so I just did as much research as I could to figure it out. And, you know, we heard birds and never saw one like, you know, but had a blast. And so for me, it was like, it was really good for my recovery because it was within, it was just over a year from my accident. So like, you know, like I said, I, you know, I was tib fib in my right leg, my talus or my ankle and all my toes in my left foot and then crushed my T12 L1 in my back. And so it was like, I mean, I, I pretty much had like went into the hospital weighing 160 pounds, came out weighing like 110. Wow. Um, 
So it was like complete recovery for me, like yeah. learning to walk, all that. And, and hunting was a way for me to like go out and just kind of push myself, right, and try to recover. Well, after I did that, I was just like – it helped reignite like this passion for me just for the outdoors and like the healing properties of it, right, mm-hmm. and just like immersing yourself in that outdoor experience, you know, and then like the whole shed antler thing, right? I mean yeah. that's, that's when I picked up my first sheds. I was like, oh, yeah, like never even thought of it, right? Like, yeah, deer shed out in the spring and we're out here in turkey country, which is their winter range right. in the area that we're at, you know, and – started picking up antlers and it just like it kind of just was this snowball effect for me as to wanting to like get involved and like understanding like how special that those places are and uh, and then it was really like you know the turkey hunting like drove me to start listening to like more and more like podcasts and stuff and actually it was like we saw a bunch of elk out there during that spring hunt and it used to be a general season rifle elk hunt I'd never never bought an elk tag in my life at that point in time right so me and my same boss, uh, Gary, were like, dude, let's buy a rifle elk tag out here for the general season. Did that, got into some elk, neither of us filled tags, you know, but we had a blast. And it was that next year that I ended up putting in for a controlled hunt for archery, didn't own a bow, drew the tag, <laughs> bought, bought a bow, and just shot every single day, you know. And uh, then I started really listening to, you know, guys like Randy Newberg and, you know, Brian Call and all these other podcast meat eater and, uh, you know, Jason Matzinger and all these guys and like really started to like learn that like what we have, like, like I took it for granted. I always just thought it was there. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like public lands, like yep. the wildlife, like everything. Right. Because if you don't know, you don't know. Right. Like, exactly. And I really started getting into that stuff and like trying to understand like why it's there, what the funding mechanism is like who are these people that are like helping take care of this stuff that are stewarding and all that sort of stuff. And then essentially I was at sportsman's warehouse one day and, uh, ran into some chapter members from the local NWTF, you know, and they're like, Hey, you want to buy a ticket to come to our banquet this spring? You know? And I was like, Oh yeah, well I just picked up Turkey hunting. Like I'll give it a go. I'd never been to a banquet before in my life, you know, and went to the banquet and, uh, they had asked at the banquet, like, hey, if anybody wants to help volunteer on our committee, just let so-and-so know at the end of the night. And so I was like, hey, you know, talk to them. Like, when are your meetings? Started going to committee meetings, and then it really just kind of took off from there, you know. So that was about, like, eight or eight years ago or so, something like that, is when I first started going to those committee meetings. So Okay. So <clears throat> how long ago was it that you, that you actually – or I guess – so the turkey hunt sounds like was your first actual – on your own with a yep. with a firearm out there. How yep. long ago was that? Uh, that would have been uh, twelve years ago. Twelve years ago. Okay. Yeah. So it's based on kind of what you were telling me and the position that you were at in life, like recovering from your accident and everything. I mean, is it safe to say that like the outdoors kind of saved you a little bit? You know, like just got you back yeah. on your feet to where you needed to be. Yeah. No, I, I really think it did, man. I mean, like living in here in central Oregon, it's very high desert. Um, there is mountains and there is that sort of stuff, you know, but we're at like 3,700 feet roughly and it's basalt lava rock, like all over. Right. And especially that area where I turkey hunt. And so it was just constantly walking on all that rock and all that stuff. And it really just helped, helped me push myself to my recovery. Um, helped me become mentally stronger just through getting over those hurdles with the issues that I had with my body and stuff, you know, and, yeah, it was 
it was great for me. You know, I don't want to say it's funny, but it's interesting to me that the more I speak with people, the more I tend to to find out, or, or, or I tend to I come to understand that there's some there's some big moment, some kind of life altering thing that happens to someone that either introduces them to the outdoors or it kind of reignites um, like a passion that they maybe had when they were younger for the outdoors. It's, it's weird how, you know, things that, you know, at the time seem, you know, I will not at the time. I mean, they are their traumatic events or their life altering events, how that brings you or reconnects you with the outdoors. I mean, to me, it's just kind of fascinating how that seems to work out. Like, you know, nature and the outdoors are what kind of get a person back to, to where they need to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So you mentioned uh, about eight years ago starting to to volunteer with NWTF. Um, and now you are actually the um, was the, 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 the state and, and local chapter president. Is that right? Yep. Yep. I'm the state and local chapter president now. So how did how did you go from just, you know, saying, hey, you know, I'll, I'll volunteer, you know, I'll come I'll come help out where I can to, to now kind of leading the charge there in Oregon. So I think it came so like when I first joined the chapter, they were trying to uh, there's a program that NWTF does called the Wheel and Sportsman's Hunt. So it's where we take out either, you know, just dis- veterans with disabilities or just people with disabilities and take them on these like these kind of like once in a lifetime turkey hunts really, you know, and it was new to the chapter. It was something that NWTF to my knowledge was just kind of getting rolled out in the Western States. And uh, they were trying to figure out logistically how they were going to do this. Well, I had a a good buddy of mine, uh, Tanner, his uh, family owns some property in Eastern Oregon. And he had told me stories about how there's just turkeys all over his grandpa's property over there. And um, we were acquaintance, acquaintances through work, and so I just called him up one day and was like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, joined the committee with the NWTF. They're looking to do this wheel and sportsman's hunt, you know, and we ended up getting access to that property. And I think just through that time, you know, I, I kind of showed the committee that, you know, I had some passion in this. And, and the whole wheel and sportsman's thing kind of like, you know, I, I kind of hold that near and dear. You know, I had been in that situation of being in a wheelchair, and, you know, I was – lucky enough or you know by grace of god or whatever um to to recover from that you know and that just really hit home for me of like giving that opportunity to people that might not be able to walk that they might have these limitations on what they can do you know and right i just really wanted to be a part of that and so help with that and then you know the chapters go through a rotation of chapter presidents essentially you know and apparently the other people there thought that i had enough passion and enough drive that they essentially voted me in um as local chapter president you know i didn't like volunteer to be like president they're like hey so uh we're gonna vote you in as president this next (laughs) term i was like what (laughs) like okay you know and so that happened and i just you know we, we have a really small group um but we have some you know a great core group of people here so like the treasurer elise like she holds us together really and helps do all the, 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 she's the banquet chair and, you know, we have other members that are, they, we all have our strong points, you know, and we have one of the committee members, his dad actually helped start the Oregon NWTF chapter, um, gosh, like 30 years ago or something oh, like wow. that. Oh, wow, okay. His dad helped write the turkey management plan for the state and he's, he's like the most passionate turkey hunter I've ever met, you know, like the guy, 
eats, sleeps, and breathes it, you know. But <laughs> so we have people on there that they've been on, they've been involved with it long enough. They really understand the way things happen, and yeah. So then, two years ago, essentially, you know, like I said, the president, even the state chapter president position, rolls over. And I was nominated at a state chapter meeting because I'm on the state board as well, or I was at the time, and I am now, obviously, because I'm the, the state chapter president. And I was nominated for president, and I didn't oppose the nomination. And so there, there you I go. Was, yeah, voted in as state chapter president. So, so how much longer do you have before your term rolls over for those two uh, positions? So it'll actually be two more years, I think, and then it'll just go back up for vote again. Okay. So I could be voted in again, or if there's somebody else that wants to take this position, then, you know, and if they they get the majority vote, then they'll get that position, you know, so. <laughs> now, does that work the same for both, like, your local chapter and the state, or? Yes, okay. yes. Yep. So if no one opposes, or if no one opposes there, or they can, I guess, just, just nominate you to yeah, yeah. keep it's running the show. Yeah, yeah, president switch right because everybody has a different lens that they look through things right right and so then that way we can try to keep things diverse and not get into like a rut or have things go stagnant yeah you know i mean and people get burnt out right like as most people know that are in these positions right like you eat sleep and breathe it like it's it's a reality to get burnt out by it you know like yeah. and you know i hope i don't get to that point but it's to make sure that people are still fresh and still in it right so yeah so, I mean, how much time would you say that you're spending, um, like, in your off hours, you know, dealing with stuff for NWTF? Um, I mean, it's not a ton, but, I mean, there's definitely a fair amount. Like, for us this year, you know, COVID has had such an impact on all these types of banquets and NGOs and that sort of stuff. But for us, normally, you know, we start having uh, chapter meetings, typically, like, late October, Um and then we have meetings about every two weeks or so um, up until March. And then March, we typically have a meeting like every week because our banquet usually happens like the first weekend in April. Okay. So it's pretty involved then, you know, trying to plan the banquet, get donations, all that sort of stuff. So I don't have an exact number for you on hours. Yeah. You know? No, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and then we also do in November, our chapter does a turkey hunters care program. So we provide a bunch of meals for local families in need. So we get donations for that, typically cash donations to buy vouchers for things or holiday meals, I should say. Um, and then like this last November, I picked up an adopter road program. So that was uh, in that same area where I first started turkey hunting and where I first rifle elk hunted because um, that area is kind of near and dear to me um, just because it helped with my recovery and stuff. So we adopted a four-mile section of road. So we go out there uh, twice a year every six months and just go pick up all this trash. It's a real high recreation area. Okay. There's lots of boaters. There's a lake back, back that way. And so trash blows out of boats and that sort of stuff, you know, yeah. and just trying to – leave it better than it was and uh, get people to see that the NWTF is out there doing other things besides just like turkey related stuff. You know? Yeah. So. No, and that's, that's huge, you know, but I want to go back. You mentioned the, the wheel and sportsman's hunt. Yeah. Um, where you guys are 
<clears throat> so how many how many members are it's it's for veterans correct or, or is it veterans or just disabled veterans it's, or it's people with disabilities or or you know veterans with disabilities essentially okay. that's the wheel in right so it's typically somebody that's in a wheelchair right um yeah so how many um people are you are, are you guys able to take out on that hunt each year so we've been doing it for this would have been our eighth year we've done seven hunts We've had some years where we took two people out and a couple years where we only had one hunter that was able to actually make it out. Okay. So, yeah, but we have, like, the the people that host us, essentially, that the property owners let us put our hunter up in their house, um, and then we stay in camp trailers on the property, and then they have a track chair, so it's essentially a, like a wheelchair but with tank tracks. Yep, yep. Um, so we're able to put them in that and really, you know – get around pretty good with that so oh nice so i mean yeah you guys it sounds like you do as much as you can to not only make the the hunter um comfortable in terms of you know because if they if they have a disability you know their 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 home is likely set up to to accommodate a wheelchair yep. or anything like that um but yep. then yeah getting them uh, a tracked wheelchair while they're out yep. in the field i mean yeah that's yep. that's a game changer for something like that yeah yeah and the landowner who lets us do it he'd been doing something similar um, through another group uh, here in Oregon, but he was doing more like late season uh, deer rifle hunts and then okay. elk rifle hunts. So okay. they were kind of used to having people come in, you know, in a wheelchair with some disabilities, having the accommodations there for them to get in and out of the house, you know, you know, be able to use the facilities, that sort of stuff, you know. So it was it was really nice being able to to make that happen. Yeah, for sure. So how do you guys? find or i guess select the veteran to do that i mean is there like a big process or do you guys kind of have someone in mind so unfortunately it's actually hard to find people to do you know to take out on these hunts so typically uh the landowner um because he's involved in this other group he does kind of have a pool that he can pull from um and we can kind of select through and usually these are people that he knows and depending on the disabilities and all that sort of stuff, or if they've been given prior opportunities, he kind of helps us make that decision, you know? Okay. Um, but then we have had hunters that we, you know, somebody in the group, you know, either had a neighbor or a friend's friend or whatever. And so we discussed it as a chapter, like, Hey, you know, I got this person, um, double amputee or whatever, you know? And I've been like, yeah, let's take them, man. Let's, let's take them out on this hunt, you know? So nice. Yeah. I mean, no, I think, I've 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 had a few other guests on in the past that do uh, something similar, whether it's like a, a veteran hunt or um, a disabled um, hunt as well. And I think that that that's got to be so good for for the person to be able to to maybe do something that they wouldn't normally be able to do on their own to get out with a, a group of experienced people who all have the same thing, uh, the same yeah. common goal, right? Is is yep. to to have that person have a successful hunt or just even if, you know, excuse me, you're not able to, to, you know, to kill a turkey or something like that, just to be out there, right. The, the brotherhood, the camaraderie that, that goes along with, with something like that. Yeah, no, it's great. Like the appreciation that these people show, you know, for just doing it, like seeing the smiles on their faces, you know, either whether they were successful or not, you know, like, they're super happy about it. Right. And just somebody going out of their way to, to give them these opportunities, you know, and like I would give up my Turkey season every year if I could go do that every weekend. Like yeah. it's a blast, man. Like it's, it's just, it's fun. Like going out and just giving people these experiences, you know, and like reigniting that passion for the outdoors that, 
you know, they may have had, but have not had the opportunities to get out and do that sort of stuff, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's a kick in the pants. So are the hunters usually pretty successful or is it kind of a, depends, We've had depends on the year. year. So last year, our hunter did not get a bird. Um, I think we've had a couple other, one other year where they did not, but for the most part, uh, we've been able to fill tags, but nice. it's turkey hunting, right? Like they're, they're incredibly <laughs> stupid and incredibly smart. You know, like you don't know if they're like, yeah, they're turkeys being turkeys. So you don't know, really know what's going on, you know? But yeah. It's, it's nice because they have a bunch of birds on the property and in the area. Um, so the opportunities are there. Every hunter's got to see a bird either come in, strut, that sort of stuff that maybe weren't able to swing to get a shot. Yeah. Because it's hard, you know, when we got people in track chairs and stuff, you know, you can't you can't pivot. Yeah. You know, and if you don't get them set up just right and that bird comes in hard left or hard right, you know, a lot of times you're not able to get the hunter to turn without making noise that then's going to blow the bird out. Right. So there's like a lot of logistical issues, you know, and then we've tried filming hunts and then, you know, there's multiple people and it's just – so it can get complicated at times, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd imagine, yeah, that it can be a, um, logistically can be, uh, can be pretty tough, especially when you get a, a pretty active bird or it, you know, is a turkey and just does what you don't think it's going to do. Right. Yeah. Right. So aside from the NWTF, what are some other organizations that, um, that you're either a member with or, you know, act, you know, actively involved with there in Oregon? Yeah. So, like I said, NWTF, uh, you know, 2% for conservation, obviously. Um, I'm a member of Mule Deer Foundation and then Oregon Hunters Association. Okay. So so how did you get hooked up with 2%? Because it seems like everyone's kind of got a little bit of a different story or kind of roundabout way of how they <clears throat> got involved. So I think I first heard about 2% on Randy Newberg's podcast when Jared Frazier was on there and... Uh, listen to that and I just like I really appreciated you know his standpoint on it and just you know if everybody gave one percent of their time and one percent of their money like how great things could be and like the difference that you know conservationists could make uh you know physically out on the landscape right and, and monetarily to help fund projects to, you know, help get things taken care of, you know, and yeah. that really struck a chord with me of like something that I wanted to be involved with, you know, and so I started following them and then I can't remember when it was, but I remember seeing the post, you know, from 2% that they were looking for committee members, right? And so I applied and yeah, I went from there. So, so how long have you been a committee member with them? Um, since it started. So what, two years now, I think. Okay. Probably. All right. Yeah. So do you guys have a lot of like, I know every like, everyone is, is a little bit different in terms of, um, you know, obviously it, it's, it's a regional type thing, but are you able to get a lot of businesses or individuals that are interested in getting certified or, you know, meeting with, with, with businesses to kind of talk to them about it? Or, I mean, how's, so, how does that work for you? Yeah. So I have talked with numerous businesses and it's getting people to commit to signing up. That's, mm -hmm. that's the hang up for me. Um, and it's unfortunate because a lot of these a lot of these businesses already donate you know lots of merchandise or give cash donations to these cons different conservation groups right, but then for them to like commit to signing up with two percent that's that's kind of been a, a hard point for me to get through and get people to actually like pull the trigger make the commitment you know pay the dues that sort of stuff. 
unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get any easier right now, but yeah. I'm still going to keep hammering on people that I know that are doing this sort of stuff and, and asking them to come join us, you know? Yeah, because, <clears throat> I mean, my company is, is certified, but it's it's amazing how many companies, and I've, I've had this conversation with, with numerous guests prior to, but how many companies are out there that are in the outdoor space or the outdoor world that aren't, you know, giving anything back yeah. to conservation, right? And their, you know, their company is is a hunting company or a fishing company sure. or, or an outdoor apparel company, you know, whatever the case is, right? It's it's something that yeah. we're all, you know, likely using or, or looking at using and they're just not interested in it for whatever reason. Yeah, no, I, you see it, man. And that's one thing that's great about 2%, right? Like go to their website, see who's actively supporting, you know, the cause and these different NGOs and buy your merchandise from them, right? Like, we, we as conservationists have that buying power, and if everybody starts buying from groups that are putting money back in, you know, like, other groups are going to see that, or other businesses, right? And they're going to want to be a part of that, you know? Yeah, so. it's, it's amazing that since, kind of since I got the ball rolling with, with the podcast and the company became certified, like, depending on what I'm looking for, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to fishandwildlife.org, I'm going to 2%'s website, and I'm like, okay, is there, does, it, does there appear to be any certified companies that, that offer what I'm looking for, right? Like, yeah. So now it's like, oh, I get my coffee. I mean, I, I wear camouflage that was already a, a 2% company, so that worked out pretty well yeah. and probably saved me some money. But yeah, like coffee and stuff, now I'm like, oh, yeah, let's, let's buy from a 2% brand. Right, yeah, man. So I know, so being involved in, you know, three or four different organizations there. What are some, some big projects that you are either working on through like NWTF or I know you've, you've got some stuff in the works with, I think the mule deer foundation you told me about. Yeah. So I guess one group I forgot is backcountry hunters and anglers as well. But, uh, so there's some, some projects going on here in Oregon. Um, so the, the great thing about the NWTF is they're really good at writing stewardship agreements um, I kind of talked with you about this before, you know, but each NGO essentially has like their strong points. And so uh, luckily some of the uh, Western directors for NWTF have been able to work with a guy named Monty out of the U S forest service here in central Oregon. And Monty's helped get these massive landscape, you know, 5,000 acre landscape projects under these stewardship agreements where NWTF is doing the agreement. Rocky mountain elk foundation is putting up a ton of money for it. Um, Oregon Hunters Association has put a ton of money on these projects and essentially it's to go through and restore ridgetop to ridgetop in these, you know, their, their elk calving grounds, their upland bird um, nesting areas. Um, they're just, they're great habitat uh, area for these wildlife, but to restore the timber, to do the thinning, to restore the native bunch grass, to do stream restoration for native red band trout, you know, like full-on, like, all-inclusive landscape projects. Um, those have, That's one of the bigger projects that's gone on here. Um, and, and Mule Deer Foundation was a part of that. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers was a part of that. Uh, TRCP was a part of that, or Theodore Roosevelt Partner, uh, Conservation Partnership. Um, the Blue Mountain Elk Initiative. There's a couple other groups, and it was actually called the All Brands, All Hands for Your Public Lands event. <laughs> and, it, it, and that was Monty, Monty Gregg, uh, was the one who kind of came up with that. And, 
it was just awesome, man, seeing, you know, because there, there is, like, contention in the conservation space between certain groups, right, where they don't want to be involved if another group is there or, you know, it's just weird, right? Because, like, yeah. like conservation is not supposed to be a competition. Right, and right? everyone's after the same thing, right? It's just to try to, to better what's already there or yeah. to, to restore habitat. I mean, yeah, the fact that there's ever, like, competing interests is, is right? it just kind of blows my mind. Right. But so, so Monty was able to get all these people together last June. Unfortunately, we couldn't do it this June because of the whole COVID situation. But uh, last June, we had almost 100 people show up Wow! and put in, I forget how many miles of fence to, to wrap around these riparian zones and then these aspen stands, essentially, which are good upland bird you know, habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fix a bunch of buck and pole fencing to keep cattle and elk out of these seeps essentially, right. To keep water flowing. And, uh, it was just, it was like, it was just great to see that many people from that many different groups all get together. Right. And like work as one and the amount of work that we were able to do and what we were able to achieve, you know, over that short period of time, is just awesome. Right. And we like, we need more of that, you know, and that's, what's great about the West is we have these massive landscapes to do these really big landscape projects if we can get all these groups to work together, you know? So did so. you guys basically just have, so you said like RMEF, uh, BHA, was, was each uh, like conservation group just kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, focused on maybe like their specialty, so like RMEF kind of focusing on like the elk habitat or like, I mean, how, how did that work with all the different groups? So it didn't matter what the habitat was. So the way it kind of works with the different groups, it would be the stewardships essentially, right? So like I said, NWTF is really good at writing stewardship agreements. They did that. RMEF put up a ton of money. Um, Oregon Hunters Association essentially holds the lion's share of money in Oregon. So they were able to put a very large chunk of money towards it. U.S. Forest Service matched some dollars. And then Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife was actually there and helped put some dollars on the projects as well. So essentially it was just, hey, we got to put, we got to essentially fence off, you know, with wildlife friendly fencing, this aspen stand, this aspen stand, fix the buck and pull fencing on all this. And that habitat, it's good for all the wildlife, right? Like it's good for deer, it's good for elk, it's good for quail, for grouse, for turkeys. Like that's what's great about those big massive landscape projects out here in the West is all those, all that wildlife uses those same space, you so, know. So no matter what you're doing, it benefits them all. Yeah, absolutely. How long did it take you guys to complete that project? Um, so essentially, I was there for a Friday night through Sunday afternoon, but there was people from the group that I think were there the week prior, okay, or that whole week before um, to help work on stuff as well. Okay. So doing like some thinning and stuff like that in some areas, and doing some of the prep work for some of the fence areas. Now, you you had talked about, or you you had mentioned that you know this year with obviously the COVID situation, you guys weren't able to to put together um, a project, and I haven't been keeping up with with other states in, in terms of how COVID has hit, how hard it's hit those states, right? So, I mean, how big of an impact has it had? Like, let's say on NWTF, for example, and, and like fundraising banquets. I mean, I don't I don't know how bad Oregon you know, if it went through a shutdown phase or, or how that worked for you guys? Yeah, so Oregon went through a shutdown pretty much like everybody else. It went to a point at one state where it was, uh, 
maximum of 10 people, you know, in a space, you know, a six foot social distancing and all yeah, that. Yeah. And for us as a, as a nonprofit, uh, one of our chapters, the Ochico chapter had their banquet. It was like end of February, beginning of March. I can't remember the exact date. And then it was like a week later, the governor did the shutdown. Okay. Right. Like, I think it was actually right before spring break um, when they ended up doing closing all the schools, like enforcing all these like, you know, maximum occupancy, that sort of stuff. And in Oregon, we only have four chapters of the NWTF. So okay. it affected the Ochico chapter. Oh, sorry. Baker actually got to have their bakers in Eastern Oregon. They actually had their banquet in February. I forgot about them. Um, then we had to postpone our chapter or our chapter banquet. We had bumped it to July 18th. And so Oregon went through like a phase opening, like a lot of places right, did. Right. We went from phase one to phase two. And then all of a sudden we started having all this uptick in. Yep. And it was like two days before we were going to have our banquet. And we essentially already had had to, uh, had to cancel it because the venue was like, we can't accommodate it because yeah. it was going to be like, it was always a buffet style dinner. Can't do that. You know, can't sanitize the whole place. Like it's an old, it was at the Elks Lodge. It's an older crowd yeah. that, that works it there. And they didn't feel like putting their employees in that position. And I can't blame them for that. Right. You know? Right. So, yeah. But yeah. Even so say if we were going to have kept our banquet going two days before they lowered it back to 10 people indoors, <laughs> you know, and we're just like, thank goodness that we uh, just ended up calling it, you know? Yeah. The fourth chapter in the state's supposed to have their banquet August 17th, I think it is. And uh, as of right now, it's we're back to that, that 10 person indoors. Or you can have, I think, 100 people outdoors with, you know, six foot social distancing, yeah. blah, blah, blah. It gets pretty hot out in eastern Oregon in the desert in the middle of August. So I don't know how <laughs> logistically it's all going to work out right now. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Don't you just get tired of saying social distancing? Yeah, yeah. I'm so over all this. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's it's probably a conversation for another time. But it just, I mean, I the the health and safety of of everyone is is of the utmost importance, and I, I I'll never argue that or or think that yeah. someone's doing too much to try to keep people safe. Right? It's just I'm just ready to get back to normal at some point here. You know. Right. Yeah. So speaking of normal, what does uh what does the fall look like for you? I mean, what do you kind of did you have like any out of state hunts or anything like that that maybe got canceled no, because no, of this? My book can't usually afford all the out of state yeah. stuff. Nope, so. Same here. And then for Oregon, like the closest place to go where you can actually get a tag is Idaho. And Idaho, the last two years, has sold all their non resident elk tags within like the first two weeks they go for sale now. Yeah. Because so many people from you know the Western states are going to Idaho cause they had the over the counter stuff. But, uh, no, so I'm looking at, I didn't draw any tags really. Um, Oregon has been an over the counter state for most of the units for, for archery mm -hmm. ever since I started bow hunting. It looks like this year it's very well possible. This is the last year that they're going to allow over the counter archery tags in Oregon. Um, that's, that's a whole nother story, <laughs> I guess. Right? Yeah. Um, but so I'll be, probably sitting in my tree stand the first couple days of the season if that pans off here locally and then i usually head out to eastern oregon and hunt out in the uh the blue mountains as they call them so, okay 
a lot higher elk population out there. Um, you know, the years are hit and miss with how many people are out there and that sort of stuff. But essentially, I have a general season, uh, you know, bull elk tag, uh, general season, you know, mule deer buck tag. Um, I'll have a fall bear tag and then cougar tag throughout the year. And then there's a fall turkey hunt that I think starts like October 15th or something like that. So, so what is your general season run for, let's say, mule deer and um, elk for archery season? 30 days. Okay, and is it start September one? Uh, no, in Oregon it, they do it weird. It's it's all based on when all the other hunts and stuff happen. So Oregon it shifts every year. So like last year it was like August twenty second or something was opening day. Okay. Um, this year it's August 29th, which for bow hunters is great because then it pushes it a week back in September. Yeah. Right. So the bulls essentially will be more ruddy that last week of September, hopefully. Yeah. Um. Whereas those years where it starts like August 22nd, you know, like I've gone out that, that like a week after bow season ended, which is like the first week of elk or general season deer rifle or controlled deer rifle. And you can hear bulls just screaming all over. Like you can walk around <laughs> with a bugle tube and get bulls just to crack off, you know, and you're like figures like archery season's over. It's deer rifle season now. The elk are just popping off like crazy and uh, had a good experience with my son doing that a couple years ago. I, uh, I'd gone to Idaho. It was the one time I'd gone, the second time I'd gone out of state for a hunt. Had to go and pull my trail cameras from the unit I normally hunt. And it was that first weekend of deer rifle. Brought a bugle and me and my son ended up calling in like three different bulls at three different trail cameras. Oh, wow. You know, and I was like, awesome. it was fun. It was a cool experience, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. so is your son uh, into hunting as well? He is not. No, no, he's gone grouse hunting with me. Um, but it's the same, like kind of with me, you know, like I buy him preference points every year. So yeah. he's got a bunch of points. He's got youth mentored hunt points, which he can combine those with other points essentially okay. to draw a decent unit. Yeah. Um, he knows the opportunities there and I would drop everything I was doing in a heartbeat to take him out and give him that opportunity, but I'll never push it on him. Yeah. You know? And, and I mean, your son, I mean, I think you kind of mentioned he was 16 17 yep. somewhere in that range 16, yeah yeah so i mean my, my kids are are much younger but i feel like that's like hunting or, or the outdoors like it's something you can't push on them right you kind of have to let them find it for themselves right you've got to let them have have their moment and, and when they're ready to yeah. to partake they'll they'll come yeah yeah and i think he he understands it and he gets it like he knows where food comes from and understands the process and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And like, you know, when I, I didn't kill a bull last year, but two years ago when I killed my bull, I mean, him and I sat out in the garage and butchered all that meat up together, you know, yeah. he had fun doing it, you know, like learning the muscle groups, how to disassemble a rear quarter and, you know, bust out the grinder and make burger and do all that. And like, he loves eating elk meat. And so it's good. At least like he understands the process, right? But right. like, this is where food comes from. This is how you make it into this. Like, you know, it's not just like at the grocery store, you know? So, yeah, no, that's, and I, I feel like the, like the industry as a whole has kind of put a lot more emphasis on that, or I've seen a lot bigger emphasis on, you know, like just the, you know, people want to be able to provide for their family. And, and to me, like, that's always been, uh, like, that's always kind of been like common knowledge, right? Like, why do you hunt? Like, well, so I, so I have venison, right? Like, so I have, or, you know, so I have whatever the case is, whatever the, the meat is, like, 
but it seems to be like that's been a, a bit more of a a focal point for for a lot of, of people in the industry you know the last five or six years and i think it's great that they're, they're putting an emphasis on that as opposed to just you know the trophy of the antlers and i mean that's right. again that's another discussion on, on how people yeah. view that right but i think yeah that's that's the most important part is is the food you know that, they, that you're actually getting from the animal right definitely yeah. and another thing with my son he he has helped with like pretty much all the banquets that i've worked at he's ran a game or helped run tickets and do all that sort of stuff He's done the roadside cleanups, the all brands, all hands, your public lands event. Like he goes out and does a lot of that stuff with me, you know, which I've been trying to instill that into him, you know, but like if you want this stuff to be around, man, like you got to get involved. But people like Like that's, that's my big thing that I always try to tell people, you know, it's just like when I grow old someday and hopefully my son has kids, I want to be able to like sit down with my grandkids and, or, or drive them out and show them all the cool stuff we did. Yeah. I don't want to show them pictures. Right. I want to be like, this is what it was. This is what we made of it. And look how good we made it. Yeah. You know, like it's not going to be here forever if people don't care. So. Yeah. Well, and I think what's, what's really cool about what you were just explaining with your son there is he's, you know, he, he doesn't partake in, in hunting. Right. But he's still, you know, part of that maybe because he's your son, part of it maybe because, hey, maybe he just enjoys the cleanup aspect of it, you know, doing, yeah. you know, helping you out at the banquets. I mean, getting people like that involved that, that aren't yeah. necessarily um, actually hunting it, it is huge for conservation, right? Because it's just so many more people that are involved to raise money, to do cleanups, to do things like that. And those are the people that we need to have understand, you know, what yeah. we as hunters are, are doing for conservation, right? Yeah. Well, that's what I wish more people would understand when it comes to like the NGOs and, you know, and that's where like backcountry hunters and anglers, you know, like really built a solid foundation in their like, not really like their marketing strategy, but like how they're like conveying what their group is to people, right? It doesn't matter if you're a mountain biker, a backpacker, a hunter, a fisher, you know, you like kayaking or whatever, like you, you sit a non-hunter down with a hunter down in the same room and be like, what's three things you love about the outdoors, right? Most likely it's going to be clean air, clean water, healthy forests, like open spaces, right? Yeah. Like there's these bonds that we can all have with this sort of stuff that everybody can agree on, you know? And like yeah. getting people that are outside of the hunting space to be like, yes, you know, yes, we kill deer. Yes, we kill elk. Yes, we kill turkeys or whatever. But look at what we're putting back into the system, right? Mm-hmm. Like look at the work that we're going out and doing, right? With these massive landscape restoration projects right or even small scale restoration projects like here in oregon you know like juniper is taken over like no other you know western pinion juniper and a large juniper soaks up like 55 gallons of water a day right yeah and it's just destroying the native grasslands right which is which is mule deer winter range right and so all these like groups like rmef oha nwtf have worked on these giant projects help thin out all this juniper and bring it back to these native grasslands which is good for all the wildlife you know and and even the people that just want to go recreate in it and it also helps reduce fire fuels you know and there's just there's so many different benefits that come from all these these projects that all these different groups work on unanimously you know and i just wish more people would be more open-minded to look at the bigger picture of what what these groups are doing you know so yeah just because uh uh, an organization that, like RMEF, for example, the Hunting is Conservation, just because they're a, you know, a, 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 an organization that focuses on hunting doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't going to benefit 
you know, a, ba- a backpacker, a mountain biker, you know, whatever the case may be. I mean, they're just yeah. the ones that are kind of leading the charge on it. Yeah. You know. Yep. Well, Chris, this has been a great conversation, man. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate you taking some time um, to sit down and kind of tell me about everything that you're doing there in Oregon and, and some work that uh, you guys have done over the last couple of years. It's, uh, it's really um, inspiring, and, and I hope a lot of people that uh, maybe are in the Oregon area or in the Bend area that, that want to get involved, definitely be sure to um, you know, look you up and, and see what they can yeah. do to, to help. Yeah, you can find me on fishandwildlife.org. Yeah, there you go. Fish and Wildlife. And then, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, I'm sure, as well, that uh, yeah, people want to reach out. Hound on Instagram, so. Yeah, reach out. So, well, yeah. Yeah, I had a great time talking, man, and love to chat again sometime. And, uh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, if I don't talk to you before, good luck this fall. And uh, hopefully you're uh, able to bag another bull. Yeah, that'd be great. My freezer's getting low. <laughs> All right, Chris, have a good one, man. You too. Thank you. All right, thanks. Okay, uh, big thanks to Chris for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, I'd also like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier. Be sure and, and check them out at stoneglacier.com. I'd also like to thank our partners at 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support um, when you're shopping for your your guiding services, um, your gear, your books, um, really anything that you can think of. Uh, I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media, uh, where it's going to be a lot of very positive conservation-driven content uh, coming out of their various feeds. Uh, So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on their social medias or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Remember, stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you.